Welcome to the New America NYC podcast. This event was recorded on September 19th, 2016, and is titled How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, and features Elizabeth Adonisio, Intelligence Officer at the U.S. Navy Reserve and former Strategic Analyst at U.S. Central Command under Commander General David H. Petraeus, and Rosa Brooks, Senior Fellow at New America, columnist at Foreign Policy, and author of How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, Tales from the Pentagon. So, Rosa, it's such a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, You know, I, I was sort of instructed that the way you normally do things here is quite informal, so I'll take that approach. And I think what we're hoping to have here tonight is a dialogue and a discussion. So, you know, feel free as we go along to, you know, jump in with any questions or comments that you may have. I think that Margaret, is Margaret around? I think that Margaret is going to circulate a mic around and so that we can keep this more of a dialogue and a Q&A and an informal style of discussion rather than a formal sense. I say that this sense. probably cuts against instinct for both of us since at the Pentagon everything involves PowerPoint slides. All right, so, all right. But, but we were told that nobody wanted to see PowerPoint slides. All right, right. But you know, I, I have to start by saying, so I felt like the book was so refreshing and I think it was to sort of, you know, go off of this, you know, kind of being used to very dry death by PowerPoint presentations, I found that the book was hysterically funny. And I feel like it's not often that you laugh out loud when you're reading a book, but I literally in the first pages started laughing hysterically and sort of, you know, kept that throughout is we're dealing with some pretty heady and serious stuff and that in no way mean to undercut the seriousness of the topic, but it's really a tribute that you took this very serious topic and there's certainly fodder for great debate here and you just put in a lot of your personal self and made it, you know, so, you know, wonderfully funny. And given that there's so much of yourself in the book, I mean, your family and your background comes out very clearly even from the beginning, maybe you can tell us a little bit about you know, your background and how that inspired you and led you to kind of jump into this topic from the vantage point that you did. Sure, thank you, Beth. And can you all hear me? Yes. Okay, excellent. Um, yeah, uh, well, thank you very much. And, and, and I, I hope that the book uh, has its funny moments. I, I, I wish I could say that humor and national security uh, are not mutually exclusive, but, but uh, Chris McPherson, who's sitting in the front here, worked with me at the Pentagon. And Chris, you may remember my, my epic effort to have the PowerPoint slides full of smiley face emoticons, uh, as well as a PowerPoint presentation for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff that had Tinkerbell in it. And I had a little bit of a power struggle with a colonel in the Joint Staff who said, I'm not giving the chairman a slide with Tinkerbell on it. And I said, yeah, but it's very apropos. But so I, <laughs> I had to kind of suppress that side of myself uh, during my time at the Pentagon. Um, So, yeah, it is not, given my family background, it probably was not a completely foregone conclusion that I was going to end up at the Pentagon, uh, much less marrying an army officer. Um, I come from an anti-war family. One of my earliest memories um, is sitting on a picnic blanket in New York Central Park, uh, celebrating the end of the Vietnam War. And I don't remember very much about that, except that somebody gave me one of those lollipops that had little cross sticks that go into the lollipop. And I thought this was extremely exotic and interesting. So this event has lived with me forever. Uh, And I remember at the age of 10 or so when the uh, requirement that young men register for the draft was resumed, 
Uh, my brother and I would make these homemade banners to protest that, and we'd stand with our family in this little small, small scruffy group of anti-war activists. This was in a blue-collar Republican town uh, uh, in front of the post office, that, that notorious symbol of government authority to protest the draft, and people would just walk by and sort of sneer and scowl at us. Um, so it was not totally obvious I was going to end up at the Pentagon. and. Um, much less marry an army officer. When I when I did that, it took my mother a little while to get over this. Although eventually she did say, "Well, I guess it's good to have an armed wing of the family." <laughs> um, um, but but coming from this background of uh, growing up very much in the tradition of the American left and the anti-war movement, um, I, I ended up going to law school. I, I worked for various human rights groups. I did a brief stint at the State Department in the Human Rights Bureau. But in some ways, like many people in, I think, our generation, you know, for my parents' generation, the paradigmatic military conflict was Vietnam, um, which seemed to them to be this terrible mistake, a misuse of power, ultimately rife with abuses and failures. And for my generation, I think the, the paradigmatic conflicts were the ethnic conflicts of the 1990s, where military force, in the case of the conflicts in the Balkans, for instance, ultimately helped uh, helped end genocidal violence uh, and the conflict in Rwanda where the failure to use military force to many people seemed to be permitting the, the perpetuation of a horrific genocidal conflict. So I think for me that those experiences and for many others as well sort of challenged my initial set of assumptions that military force is always bad, that the best thing that could ever happen if they gave a war was that no one would come and we'd all disband the military and beat our swords into plowshares. And it left me feeling certainly more ambivalent, uh, but more open to the idea that military force sometimes is necessary and can sometimes be an important, important in ensuring stability and in fact in ensuring human rights. So that that's ended up sort of indirectly leading me to do some academic work on the role of the military uh, in post-conflict reconstruction, which led to a job in the Pentagon. But coming from that, that perspective where uh, I retained a lot of my outsider skepticism, even while finding myself becoming more and more of an insider, and some of the, my own struggles to resolve these contradictions uh, as well as, as, a, as a, someone who cared about human rights and cared about the human beings in the military and the human beings acted upon by the military. Uh, struggling to reconcile all those contradictions very much led to the book. And it, it seems like, you know, you know, even when you sort of talk about, you know, what at least one thread of the book, uh, which is sort of this space in between, that, you know, that sort of lies at, you know, kind of this, you know, several kind of dichotomies or this, you know, space that is actually kind of, I don't know, um, you know, a way in which the military is engaged in, in all of these um, different capacities, which it, it, it may or may not be, you know, ideally, um, uh, you know, ideally the, 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 the body to, to, to react to, you know, this space in between as sort of this perpetual state of war. And, and, and so maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, the motivations. You talked about sort of what led you, you know, into now sort of this orbit that is, you know, the defense universe. 
um, but can you sort of take from that and lead us into kind of the, you know, the motivation to the book itself, the motivation to this tension that's sort of inherent in your term, this, this space in between? Yeah, so uh, I'll tell you another story about my mother first, okay, and that sort of relates, I think it relates. Um, um, when I had been at the Pentagon for, for a few months, I invited my mother to come and have lunch with me. And, um, she had sort of last set foot at the Pentagon to try to levitate it. Uh, uh, so she was a little bit leery of doing this. So, but, you know, I get her in through the visitor's entrance and through the multiple layers of security and, and we go up the long escalator and we pop out and we go past the food court and we go past the CVS drugstore and we go past the florist store and we go past the barbershop and we go past the chocolate store and so on and at a certain point my mother just stops still in the corridor and she she looks around her and she looks at me and she says you're telling me that the heart of american military power is a shopping mall <laughs> um you know and she wasn't far wrong and this i think is one of the things that struck me most as well at the pentagon you know that that the pentagon as you know it's, it's the world's largest office building uh, it's got 23,000 employees, military and civilian. It's got 17 and a half miles of corridors. And over the years, uh, shops and restaurants have sprung up all over the place in those 17.5 miles of corridors to cater to all those people who work there. And in a similar way, over the years, the US military has sort of evolved to provide a similar kind of one-stop shopping experience for the nation's top policymakers, and and this really kind of blew me away when I was at the Pentagon. That you name it, any issue you can think of, somebody was working on, somebody was researching or trying to create a program. So you got to this sort of slightly surreal point where at the Pentagon, if you wanted to buy a pair of running shoes, you could buy a pair of running shoes, or you could order a Marine Expeditionary Unit to patrol in the <laughs> Philippines. You know, if you had a headache, you could go to CVS and get some Advil or Tylenol, uh, or you could order a team of special forces medics to fight malaria in Chad. You could buy a cheap cell phone if you needed one, or you could, if you were sufficiently senior, you could order the NSA to monitor the cell phone communications of terror suspects. And I kid you not, you could buy a small chocolate replica of a fighter jet at the Pentagon, or you could order a drone strike in Yemen. You know, and it's, it's this kind of, uh, uh, you probably know my friend, retired Lieutenant General Dave Barno, uh, who talked about the military as having become a kind of super Walmart with everything under one roof. And we've seen two successive presidential administrations have been, been avid consumers of everything that the Pentagon can offer. But this is really complicated because the sort of Walmartization and expansion of military activities, I think, is both a a, both a reflection and a driver of really profound changes in how we think about war and how we think about the role of the military itself. Maybe let's talk about that a little bit. What do you think is changing about how we think about war? What has changed? I think that uh, we still tend to think of war as a discrete temporary state of affairs that is separate from normal life. Um, um, but what in fact has happened as a result of the, I, I think symbolized and symbolically sort of accelerated by the 9-11 attacks, but the trends were there beforehand, 
Um, you know, we're now in this world in which we're facing novel threats from novel quarters, and they're often very diffuse. Uh, they don't come neatly packaged. They cross borders. They cross nationalities. They don't always involve traditional weapons. Um, and as we face more and more of these non-traditional threats from unexpected quarters, we've started to view more and more things through the lens of war. Uh, uh, rather than through the lens, say, of crime, for instance, or, or rather than through creating some other category. And as we view more and more through the lens of war, a uh, couple things happen. You know, one is that as you view more and more things through the lens of war, you pull more and more spheres of human activity into the ambit of the law of war, which has a radically different framework, much greater tolerance for secrecy, much greater tolerance for coercion and lethal force, uh, reduced requirements for checks and balances and external accountability mechanisms than ordinary law. So the more we pull into the war, the more we decide we're going to call war and pull into the war box, the more things are subject to that more permissive set of rules. Um, at the same time, it's the old adage of, you know, when everything, uh, when, when your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When your only functioning government institution is the military, everything looks like a war. When everything looks like a war, everything looks like a military mission. And we can, we have, I think, gotten into kind of a vicious circle uh, where the more we ask the military to do, the more we think of as war, the more we ask the military to do, um, the more we ask the military to do, uh, the, more we the more we have to look for savings elsewhere. We cut budgets of civilian foreign affairs agencies. The more we do that, the less those civilian agencies can do. So we look to the military to pick up the slack and the cycle continues. And at the same time, so does the sort of legal piece of it, where the more we think of as a war, the more we sort of suck into that law of war framework uh, and more and more gets taken outside of kind of ordinary politics and ordinary law and subject to special rules. Yeah, it's interesting. I found it really interesting in your book when you're talking about that, you talk about a lot of different societies. In fact, you know, they really kind of gear up for that sort of time of war and phase of war, you know, by using a special language, if I'm remembering correctly, or, you know, kind of facing a certain direction as opposed to another, and that there was really this drastic distinction purposefully made to kind of keep that sphere separate from like the ordinary course of life. Yet I got the sense, um, but correct me if I'm wrong, that you're, you sort of came to the conclusion in the book that, um, you know, sort of the, the horse has left the stable, so to speak, and that we sort of have to now deal with this state of affairs as it is now, as opposed to in some way trying to kind of keep fighting this battle of war in this one sphere and peace in another. You know, do you want to yeah. talk about that and, yeah. and then maybe start to, t to talk to us a little bit about then where this leads you? Yeah, one of the parts of the book that for me was the most fun to research. Many years ago, I did a master's degree in anthropology, and I've always sort of thought, oh, that's what I really should have done. So, so for me, one of the most fascinating parts of researching the book was diving into the historical and anthropo anthropological literature on how different societies sort of tried to police the boundaries between war and peace and uh, warriors and non-warriors. And what's fascinating is that essentially every human society uh, throughout history has tried to do that, although they've done it in very different ways. And they've tried to do it for a reason that is sort of so obvious that I think we lose sight of it sometimes in this murkier era uh, of high-tech conflicts, you know, which, is, which is that 
we expect radically different things of human behavior in wartime than in peacetime. And you know, to put it completely bluntly, you know, if I walk outside and I bash the next person who walks by over the head with a big, heavy, hardcover copy of my book, you know, and I kill them, um, we assume in peacetime that the police come and they arrest me and I'm charged with murder and, and I go to jail and that's the way it should be because in normal time, ordinary law in peacetime does not let you go out and kill people. Uh, on the other hand, if there's a war and I'm a combatant and I see an enemy walking down the street, um, I not only am permitted to try to kill them, I may be legally obligated to try to kill them. And if I do so, I won't be punished. I might be given a medal. Um, and so, so the, the expectations, whether it comes to the use of lethal force or whether it comes to our tolerance of government secrecy or censorship or surveillance or the degree do we think there ought to be judicial review, other kinds of checks and balances, in time of war is almost diametrically opposed to our expectations in time of peace. So we kind of want to know the difference between war and peace. And in one way or another, that's been true for almost every society. And, and just to give a few examples, my, some of my favorite examples, the, the, amongst the old Norse, the berserkers who gave us our modern word berserk, uh, were warriors who would don the pelts of wolves and bears when they went into battle and, and believed that this would cause them to shapeshift and take on the attributes of those predators when they fought, enabling them to achieve a sort of level of uh, brutality and combat efficacy they couldn't otherwise hope to achieve. And we see, we see rituals, war paint and war masks and war drums. The Navajo and the American Southwest, I think you were referring to, to them, they actually had a different language for going to war. So when uh, men would set off on raids, uh, they would leave their territory, they would use a different vocabulary, different verb forms. When they returned, they would draw a line in the desert sand, face enemy territory, turn around, face their home territory, step over the line, and resume the normal language. And many Native American tribes actually changed the the locus of civic authority, depending on whether it was wartime or peacetime, would have war chiefs and peace chiefs. And during wars, the war chief was in charge. And when the war was over, it was back to the peace chief. Um, so again, you kind of want to know the difference if you're, if you're changing your entire government. And uh, my all-time favorite uh, one that sticks with me is the Makao Indians uh, in Melanesia. Um, would have elaborate rituals to prepare men to transform into warriors when they went out on raids involving song and masks and so forth. But among other things, the men would have to abstain from eating and drinking certain things and be sexually abstinent. And then when they returned from the war, they had to once again go through a period of several months of sexual abstinence because the Mikhail believed that if they failed to do that, if they had sexual relations with their wives before the war sorcery had worn off their skin, that it would leach from their bodies uh, into the bodies of their wives and into any openings in their bodies, killing them both. And the war was seen as sort of literally toxic to ordinary community life. Um, and I think, you know, we think that we're different, but in fact, modern American society, we're actually quite similar. Um, you know, we take recruits in basic training, we shear off their hair, we take away their clothes, we give them special colored ribbons and bits of metal to wear on their chests that 
are meaningful only to other members of that particular tribe. We engage in these elaborately choreographed drill ceremonies that bear no modern relationship to actual combat. Uh, and we, much like the Old Norse, name our weapon systems after fearsome predators, you know, the, the Black Hawk, the Hornet, the Reaper, the predator itself, perhaps in the same hope. You know, so we've, we, we still have all these ritual ways in which we try to say, war is over here, peace is over here, everything else is over here. You know, the warriors here, ordinary people is, are over here. Because we want to maintain this sharp line, if you want people to go berserk and kill everybody in war, but you don't want that to bleed over into peacetime. But now we're in a situation where, because of the rise of, say, transnational non-state terror networks, cyber threats, et cetera, all these sort of inchoate threats that are really hard to fit into that old war box neatly or that old peace box neatly, what we've done in sort of two successive presidential administrations has been to toss them all into the war box um, with the expectations in accordance with that of what we'll tolerate in terms of secrecy, in terms of coercion, and so forth. So we still live in a world in which we, we have this kind of binary legal system and a set of rituals that are designed to maintain this binary, either it's war or it's not. But we live in a world in which the only way to do that is to kind of shoehorn into the war box a lot of stuff that doesn't fit very neatly and to move into that law of war box a lot of things that maybe we'd prefer to have a different legal framework. Because we have a hard time, and, and, and I, you know, happy to talk more about this, figuring out if, if, if in the real world that we confront now, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of in between, but we don't have a legal or political or institutional framework for figuring out what to do with the in-between. And I think in some ways we're, you, I, I mean, one of the lessons for me of the, the anthropological literature is that, yes, every society tries to draw sharp lines between war and not war, but where those lines are drawn and the, the sort of the content of what's in the war box and what's in the peace box and whether there is an in-between category varies from society to society. And we tend to think of our own set of legal rules and institutions as being somehow eternal. You know, that's just the way it is. We've got the law of war, we've got regular law, we've got this, we've got that, we've got the military, we've got civilians. But in fact, our own categories are probably no more sacred or eternal than those of the Navajo or the Mikeo Indians. Maybe yeah, let's talk a little bit. And then I, I'd welcome everybody to kind of jump in with, with questions. But maybe spend a minute then talking about where that leads us. Talk a bit about this space in between and where that leads you to thinking about how we deal with this space in between. Yeah. So uh, there, I think there are two, two, two different pieces of it. You know, one piece has to do with all the legal and rule of law conundrums, and the other has to do with a set of institutional questions about the role of the military itself. On the, on the, the side of sort of the legal conundrums, um, I think, you know, we've, we've suffered post 9-11 in this country from, I think, a massive failure of imagination that because we have all these situations that don't fit neatly in our existing categories, but we, we jam them all into the war box, we then apply war rules to them. Um, but it's not particularly clear that they should be there. Um, and so we end up in a world where it's perfectly lawful for the US government, for instance, to engage in 
targeted killings around the world that have killed an estimated four plus thousand people that are unacknowledged and covert where we don't know who the targets, we as citizens don't know who the targets are, we don't know what the evidence is, uh, you know, and it makes, obviously it makes a lot of people very uncomfortable, but if that stuff is in the, the, the war box, legally speaking, if it's in the war box, um, then it's legally and morally no different from an American soldier uh, on Omaha Beach, you know, shooting at a German. You know, just nothing new here. Uh, wartime targeting of enemy combatants, no new moral and legal issues. If we think, well, wait a second, we're not sure you can put all that in the war box, uh, then it's, it's extrajudicial murder. Uh, and we really want to know the difference, obviously. Um, and in some ways, I actually think that's a relatively easy one, you know, that if, if, if we're facing all these in-between threats that don't look like Omaha Beach, but also don't look like ordinary crime, you know, the, the, the scale of lethality and severity of the threat posed uh, are greater than you would think of for ordinary crime. Um, and yet at the same time, the differences between this and our sort of traditional understanding of war are, are, are huge. They're hugely significant. What we're doing in terms of US drone strikes, for instance, is much more individualized. It takes place over a much longer time. You know, there's no inherent reason that you couldn't decide to have a different set of rules and institutions for those in-between situations. You know, that, for instance, we tend to say um, uh, one constant response that you get from executive branch officials when you say, well, couldn't we have some sort of greater due process before these targeted strikes? You get this kind of, whoa, everybody knows that you can't have a court on the battlefield. That's silly. And if your image of the battlefield is, is Omaha Beach, then that is silly. Of course that's silly. Everybody gets why it's silly. Um, you know, if you've got total chaos and dead bodies all over the place and only an instant to make a decision, uh, it's silly. On the other hand, if, you, if, if war is turning into something where at least some of the time, or if the in-between space a lot of the time gives you situations where the people we're targeting, we have been tracking for months, weeks, months, maybe even years before we strike, um, well, then it's not silly anymore. It doesn't seem like there's any particular reason that you couldn't have some judicial or quasi-judicial process uh, for those situations that do permit the opportunity for greater deliberation and so forth. Um, so I think it is, it, is, it is in some cases hard, but in many cases actually pretty straightforward to say in that space between war and peace, let's come up with the kinds of rules and institutions that we think help us both achieve our security goals, which are legitimate, obviously, but that are also consistent with the values we care about and the precedents we want to set for other actors in the international sphere. A related but different problem for that in-between space is the problem of what do you institutionally, how do you think about the military? You know, in a world in which um, increasingly we want and need the military to be doing all these things that don't look much like, you know, the image of war and warriors formed by watching Saving Private Ryan, right? That if we think that we live in a world in which for the foreseeable future, the United States is going to have a need to have people training Afghan judges and Iraqi parliamentarians and launching microenterprise programs uh, for Afghan women and preventing trafficking and countering piracy. 
if we think that that's in fact something the US is going to need and we think as I, as I do tend to think that it is too late to sort of turn around and magically breathe new life into the civilian agencies for all kinds of reasons, then you start saying, well, what would it mean to have the military take those tasks seriously as not just temporary aberrations, distracting it from its fundamental mission, but as part of its mission going forward? You know, how would that change the way we recruit? How would that change the way we train? How would that change the military personnel system? Can we do that? Do we want to do that? You know, what, what would it mean to take that seriously moving forward? And I think it, it would it would potentially involve some pretty radical changes institutionally. I think that's it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.